Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. For this series, we've asked some of our regular Hey interviewers to choose their own personal Hey moments from our archive. These might be interviews they've done, that they've seen, or the interview they wish they had the chance to do. And this week, it's the turn of Stephanie Merritt. Stephanie started her career as a deputy literary editor of The Observer in 1998, until she left the desk job to become a full-time writer. She's since written for The Times, The Daily Telegraph, The Guardian, The New Statesman and a whole host of magazines. Her first novel was published in 2002 and then in 2008 she decided to combine two of her literary passions, history and crime, and started writing the first in her series of bestseller historical thrillers under the name S.J. Paris. Hello, I'm Stephanie Merritt. I also write as S.J. Paris. And I'm delighted to have been asked to select three favourite clips from past Hay events for this podcast. I've had the privilege of taking part in the Hay Festival every year since my first novel came out in 2002, both as an author and as an interviewer, so it's been quite a challenge to narrow it down from so many inspiring memories. But here we go. My first choice is probably the most inspiring talk I've seen at Hay, and it's Toni Morrison, interviewed by Peter Florence in 2014, on the subject of her novel Beloved. Morrison was 83 at the time, but as you'll hear from the clip, she's so sharp and articulate and she talks so eloquently about the origins of the novel and the history behind it. As a historical fiction writer, I'm always interested to hear about how an author encounters a true story and finds in it a spark of inspiration for their fiction. So it was really fascinating to hear her talk about how she came across the story of the slave Margaret Garner and how that led her to the idea for Beloved. I found it especially poignant to hear her talking about memory and trauma, and the ways in which stories are handed down through the generations, particularly in terms of her own family, and the way that trauma of slavery was spoken of largely through metaphor and what she calls codes. There's so much to enjoy in this interview. I particularly loved hearing her talk about how to write sex scenes without being boring, which she's very good on, Uh, and also the importance of rhythm and music in the way her prose is read. There's an audience member towards the end who prefaces his question by saying how lucky and privileged he feels to have heard her speak in person, and I remember feeling exactly that, being in the audience at that event. I hope you'll enjoy listening to her wisdom. We're here today to talk about Beloved. Ah, yes. Can we start with... A bit of context, both for you and for the book. You, when you came to write this book, had written Bluest Eye, Sula, Tar Baby, Song of Solomon. You were 15 years into writing. You'd been editing for 20 years. You were at the top of your game, confident in voice and mastery of form, and you have this story. Had you been waiting to explore it? Or did it come to you at a particular time just when you were ready for it? I think two things happened. One, I lost my job at Random House as an editor. Lost with quotes, you know. I did all these brilliant books I edited and everybody loved them and nobody bought them. So, (laughs) I, before I went and got another job, there was this moment when I was unemployed and I was sitting out front on my pier, and uh, I felt very nervous, 
and sort of jittery, and there's a strange feeling I hadn't had ever. And I couldn't figure out what it was until I thought carefully, what is this thing I'm feeling? And the thing I learned was happiness. I hadn't felt, I felt content and even successful in certain areas, but not just sheer happiness. So that was a new state for me. I go back in the house and I remember a book I did while it was at Random House called The Black Book. And it was a sort of whole earth catalog type book of the uh, history of Africans and African Americans, especially in the United States. Newspaper clippings, photographs, advertisements, all sorts of stuff. Um, good stuff, terrible stuff, uh, things that made you feel good, things that made you feel bad, and so on. But one of those things was a newspaper article about a woman named Margaret Garner who had killed her baby, tried to kill her other two children, and was put on trial. The question was, the, the journalist's question was why she was so calm. She wasn't crazy, she wasn't nuts, she wasn't you know, on a tear. There was no vengeance involved. So he was very surprised at the tranquility. The second thing was, they didn't know what to do with it. The abolitionists who were fighting to get rid of slavery furiously wanted her tried for murder. And the slaveholders wanted her tried for theft. The theft of the infant, the theft of herself, and so on. And, but murder they couldn't take because that would mean that she was responsible for her child. Which, if she's an animal, you know, like a sheep <laughs> or a cow, if she has a cowlet, a calf, she's not responsible morally for its life. So that was a major, major question in this little article. And I didn't read much else because I didn't want to know anymore. It was just a setup of the question. So I invented a couple, you know, a situation in which a woman does that, a slave woman, and why. But the problem came instantly because I couldn't make up my mind either. I mean, not about uh, whether she was, should be tried for theft, but whether she should kill her child. And I talked to um, a friend of mine about it, because I remember the mother-in-law said, well, I couldn't condemn her, and I couldn't praise her. And so I talked to somebody, and he said, well, it was the right thing to do, to keep her child from being enslaved, but she had no right to do it. So I thought, that's a perfect. <laughs> and I said, who could answer that question? And the only person who could answer it, or could, was legitimately could answer it, would be the dead child. So that was a little put off putting, you know, oh, we're gonna write this kind of thing. 
but I happened to be looking out the window. Sorry, that sounds so stupid, but I saw this woman. I live right by a river called the Hudson River, and my house is about 30 feet from the shore. And I was looking this way and toward the trees, the river's over here. And I saw this woman crawl up out of the water, fully dressed, with a hat on, <laughs> and sit down on a sto stone out there. Well, of course, that's a hallucination or whatever, but it was a solution as well as a hallucination or whatever. Ghost, you know, whatever writers do <laughs> when they see stuff. Um, and I thought, yeah. So that's how I got that scene. She disappears. But I wanted to make it um, so she could be the return of the dead daughter. Setha thinks she is. Everybody thinks she is. But she could also be a person that had been held in slavery since she was an infant and the master dies and she finds her way. But having been on the ship, among others who were dying and seeing her own mother leap into the sea rather than, you know, to be abandoned that way. So her relationship with Setha would be real, whether she was the dead daughter or the living abandoned slave. That was pretty long, but <laughs> I did. <laughs> How did you find the language? Well, always, always difficult. Um, if you can only get that first sentence, but I have to say, um, what was in my mind was the end of the book, because I sort of know the, the beginnings. I know how to get a reader into it. But the real point of Beloved was memory. Uh, you know, like generations after major terror like that, they don't talk about it. It's like coming home from a war. You can't get veterans to talk. Uh, Holocaust survivors, the first generation, never spoke of it and took you know, several generations down. Same thing with enslaved people in the United States. You know, my great-great-grandfather never spoke about it, didn't want to talk about it, you know, until you get ch children and grandchildren and so on. So there was this memory thing that was the most important thing for me in writing the book. And recently I got a first edition copy of Beloved from uh, Penn, P-E-N, and they were asking authors, sent a lot of first edition books over years, they have been doing this, to authors to write in them, make notes. And people correct themselves and scratch out characters and do all sorts of things. Or you can just sign it, you know, whatever. So I wrote on the second page that the book could have begun with the last two pages, which is where I really sort of started. Once I know the ending, the acquisition of knowledge, uh, the middle I never know. I mean, I don't know how they're gonna behave or what their names are and so on. But I have the question at the beginning 
and then I know the ending, what it is. And how to get there is sometimes problematic. But the ending of Beloved is uh, about footsteps. Sometimes you see a photograph, and if you look at it too long, it seems to move, you know, things that happen that spur memory of something that you're like footsteps on a beach, and then they go away, and then they come back, and then they go away. It was that kind of feeling that I was trying to engender in, uh, in the whole enterprise. You know, it was getting the, you know, does she, was, who was her husband? Did she have a husband? You know, I had to ignore a lot of Margaret Garner's real life in order to surround her with the people I wanted her to know, her surviving children. Before getting there, just tell me a little, because insofar as slavery is addressed in American literature before this, it's by white men, mm. largely. The reports of it that are handed down, even in newspaper cuttings, are by white men. Mm -hmm. There's little understanding of the stories that can come from published sources. So how do the stories come down to you, apart from finding this document about Margaret Garner? What else did you know, and how did you know it? There were stories, and there were books written by uh, former slaves. Uh, you know, like Frederick Douglass and people like that. But it was very clear to me that he was not writing to me. He was writing to abolitionists and white people who would help his cause. So he wasn't going to disturb those people because he was pleading, you know, this is a horrible life, and I did this, this was bad, but, and the wicked slave owner was over there. So there was an absence of relationship in that book, and in many of, even in the Renaissance, you know, they were always sort of, they knew that the readership was not black. The readership were white readers. So the books had a different feeling. So there was that information. Or even when some of the slavers, like Equiano, you know, he sees a bit in a woman's mouth in the kitchen, and he says, what's that? And they say, oh, that's a bit. And he says, uh-huh. And he goes on. So they <laughs> say, what? <laughs> uh, so that was sort of data-wise it was important, but there was some absence of connection. On the other hand, the stories, uh, my grandfather was born in 1865, and my, his daughter, my mother, remembered people in the family older than he was. And they had stories, but they were very, oh, how can I put it, metaphorical. Uh, kind of ghost stories, um, not really about it, you know, it was sort of translated in code. When you hear African-American spirituals that are not even about God, they're about how to escape, you know, down by the riverside. It's all, you know, something else they're telling one another. And it, and it was really sort of like that. I learned, I have to tell you, this stunned me. My father was born in Georgia. Um, 
he described his life in Georgia as being horrifying. I mean, he just, nothing good will come from Georgia. Okay. Uh, and he went back every year to visit relatives. My mother is born in Alabama. She has parent, grandparents and great-grandparents who were also slaves. She loved it. The South was so lovely. It was so beautiful. She left when she was six. She n never went back. So they're treating this thing. I go to Georgia, to the town where my father was born, who said white people were incorrigible. There would never, ever be a reasonable, even, not less good, but reasonable. He wouldn't let white people in the house, you know, when they would come to collect the rent or whatever. They'd stand outside. He was unbelievable, steady. My mother, she judged everybody one at a time, what they, you know, how they were as people, whether white or black. I go to Cartersville. I know my father's like this, but he goes back every year. I go to Cartersville, I talk to some people. My maiden name is Walford. I go there, it's Walford College, Walford Plantation, Walford this. Obviously, that's the family that owned them. And there's a Walford preacher and a church. I go to find the house where he lived. The man knows him. There were two black men right down the street who owned little businesses who were lynched on his street. And he was 12, no, 14 years old, and he saw that and left <laughs> went to California, San Diego. So there are two things that were going on. As a child, as a teenager, he saw the lynching. Uh, and second was he was part of a, a family that he went to see every year. So there was that part of, quote, slavery that was there after Emancipation Proclamation that was unspeakable, literally unspeakable. But the vestiges of it he could see down the street, you know, from his house. So that's a very complicated, they're bad, we're good, that's not it. It's very complicated. It's, it's, as bad as you can think of. And, uh, and then there's some respite in it. For me, it was the resistance. I don't mean running away or you know, fighting. It was the imaginative resistance, the language that came out, the stories that came out, the songs that came out. And it changed over time. But there was such movement toward art and beauty even though it was despised then, it nevertheless kept communities, whole communities, uh, together. I was asked to choose an event with someone that I would have loved to have interviewed myself. Well, I've been lucky enough to have interviewed many of my literary heroes at Hay, but one of the people I didn't, and now never will, is the Swedish writer Henning Mankell, who died in 2015. But I was in the audience for Sarah Crompton's fascinating event with him in 2011, and it was one of those hay talks where I just wished it could have gone on for another hour at least. 
Mankell was a writer I admired enormously, firstly because I loved his Valander series, their fantastic detective novels, but I also loved the way that he used the crime genre as a way to talk about the social issues that mattered to him. And he's passionate here in his defence of crime fiction against the kind of literary snobbery that can sometimes attach to it. But I also really envied him for the way he seemed to have struck the perfect balance between the solitude necessary to write novels and the desire for artistic collaboration that is something I think a lot of writers struggle with and why literary festivals are so important to us. He seemed to have achieved the perfect creative life in that he spent half his year writing novels and the other half running a theatre company, which seemed to me pretty much the ideal solution. I also admired him because he was someone who didn't shut himself away in an ivory tower. He really walked the walk when it came to his principles and his political beliefs, and one of the things he talks about in this interview which most interested me was his experience of taking part in the Gaza flotilla in 2010, when he was on board a ship that had attempted to break the Israeli embargo on Gaza, and he ended up being arrested and imprisoned in Israel. He comes across here as somebody who is warm, passionate, well-read, and a man of great conviction. And although I'm sad that I'll never get the chance to have a conversation with him in person, I'm very glad that I got to see this. One very important thing in my life was obviously the Cold War that we all lived with. Now, in Sweden, there is a specific thing, and that is... Uh, uh, Sweden were never member of NATO, and we were supposed to be neutral, and that was hypocrisy. We were never neutral. We were always on the side of the United States or NATO. Uh, we know, for example, now that during the 50s, they were flying American airplanes all over Sweden, day out and day, and day in. And that was a break of neutrality, but it happened. But while the politician was standing saying, we are defending neutrality, that was bullshit. It wasn't true, really. And some of you might remember that in the beginning of the 80s, we had some uh, situation with submarines in Stockholm. And uh, well, first of all, we never got any of these submarines up, which is very strange, but it is not that strange because First of all, we do not really know if it was submarines at all. And if it was submarines, it wasn't Russian, it was American. And can you imagine what it had meant if we were bombing to get the Russian submarine up and we got the American submarine up? <laughs> that would have crushed completely the, the idea of Sweden as a neutral country. So we have so many dirty linen in our own history of the Cold War that I try to write about because I think that honestly is a good way to defending democracy, you could say. Which brings us quite neatly, I think, to why you weren't here last year, because you were um, detained physically uh, mm -hmm. by your uh, political engagement and having been part of uh, the flotilla of boats that was trying to lift the Gaza blockade, and you were in fact in prison at the time that you should have been in Hay. Um, why do you feel that, in addition to writing about uh, these issues, that you must also take direct action? I think, as a writer, you are an intellectual. And as an intellectual, you 
have to react on certain things you see, injustices in the world, and which I think I have done since I was a teenager. I think there is a saying that I believe is very truthful. You can say, as long as one single person in the world is not free, no one is really free. And so I believe. And uh, I have been working with solidarity movements since I was very, very young. And we will talk about it later, but I also spent a lot of time in Africa. In one of the neighboring countries in South Africa. So I saw the apartheid system for many, many years. This terrifying, brutal system. And I saw it fall. Now, today I see in Israel a new apartheid system where the Palestinians are treated as second-class citizens in their own country. You cannot imagine what it is like in Israel. I have been there. I won't go back there now because I'm forbidden to go back. But uh, this is true that I felt that, to me, it was an action that was good to try to break the illegal occupation of Gaza by some ships in a non-violent way. And what happened, you know, that one year ago, exactly now, we were attacked on international water, which is piracy. And nine people were killed around me. And the rest of us was kidnapped to Israel, put in prison, and then sent out of the country. I can tell you now that there will be another flotilla this year. And I will go with it again. Because I believe that the Palestinians need all the support you can give them the same way as we gave Nelson Mandela and these people support. As long as one person isn't free, no one is free. And I believe as an intellectual, I have to participate in these things. But fortunately, this flotilla didn't go now, so I could come to him. <laughs> By the way, I saw that uh, outside here there are uh, buckets where I think it said that support medical aid to the Palestinians do that. That's a good way of using money. Okay. You mentioned Africa, and I, I always think one of the most fascinating things about you is that when I think about you, I think of sort of, um, you know, these series of contrasts, sort of dark of Sweden and the sun of Africa, and you spend half a year in Sweden and half in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you think, and you run a theater company, so novel, novel writing being a sort of um, interior act, and running a theater company being a very um, exterior act of, you know, having to motivate other people. Do you think that that's a good analysis? And how do you think those two lives have sort of affected you and changed you? Uh, I have many privileges in my life, I know that. But one of the most profound privileges I have is that I can sit alone in a room writing. And then at a certain moment, I can rise from the chair, open a door to another room that's full of people with whom I can do theater. And then at a certain moment, I can go back to the first room again, to the solitude. This is one of the greatest privileges I have in my life. And I find it fantastic to be able to do this kind of work. I never had any kind of interest in acting, but directing seemed to me be a sort of brother 
to, to, to writing, creating words in a way. And why on earth did I end up in Africa? Well, there are, to all questions, there are long answers, medium answers, and short answers. And I think we shall take a short answer here. 40 years ago, when I was a very young author, I realized that I wanted to have a perspective of the world from outside the European egocentricity. I wanted to see the world from other parts. And that brought me to Africa. And this is now 40 years ago. When I go back to Africa in uh, July this year, I would say it is for the same reason for, as 40 years ago. The fact that I think that by living with one foot in the sand and one foot in the snow, I get a clearer understanding of the human condition of our times. Because the Africans are living completely different lives than we are. And this makes me a richer man and also better European, I think, because I can see with distance what's good in Europe, and I can see the cracks in the walls. So I think what I get from that life in Africa, even though it has been dangerous and difficult, I believe it is so enormously important for me as a writer and as a human being. So I would like to continue to live like this as long as I can. This is a very, very short answer to a very complicated question. But uh, I, uh, I do not have no sentimental nor romantic reasons for being there. This is pure fact, what I'm telling now. Are you, I was talking to um, uh, somebody the other day, and we were talking about the fact that you, you, you were saying that when you're with your theatre company, you, you, you're working in Portuguese. Yeah. And of course, when you're writing, you're writing in Swedish. Do you think you are a sort of different person in those two languages? Do you think there is a sort of change in, in uh, the Henning Mankell who emerges? No, not really. I, I think what is happening is quite funny. When I go to Africa, it takes about a week. Then I start to dream in Portuguese. And when I go back to Sweden, it takes about a week. Then I start dreaming in Swedish. But uh, I would say I am the same person whether I'm in Hay or Wales, for that matter, or in England, for that matter, or in Sweden. I, the only thing that people have told is that it seems that I'm laughing more when I'm in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> and I really, I can't say whether that is true or not. But what I know is true, that even if in an enormous poor country like Mozambique, there are small islands of richness where people can laugh and enjoy small things. And we can also say that in rich countries like where we are living now, there are small islands of poverty, that there are certain things we have forgotten to enjoy. So I believe that I'm living with, yes, once again, one foot there and one foot there. And uh, so maybe it's true, but I, I really don't know. But I'm the same person. Of course I am. Do you ever write when you're in Africa? I mean, so do you, do you write novels while you're there? My dear friend, I write every day, <laughs> even today. Uh, even I started this morning far away here in England somewhere. I don't, Charleston, I think. Sorry. Sussex. Brighton. Sussex. Sussex, Sussex. Sussex, yes, yes. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I do work every day, not, maybe not very much, but there are a certain amount of work done every day. I mean, I have been accused of so many things in my life, but never to be lazy. And I guess that is true. I am not lazy. 
I do work every day, and uh, I've already planned that tomorrow morning I will come back here, but I have an hour between seven and eight, and well, I do something. And how do you write? Do you write on a computer? Do you write longhand? Do you? This is, uh, this, uh, this is interesting, really. The only thing I can say about my writing is that when I write a novel or journalism or whatever, I use the computer. But when I write a screenplay or theater, I write with hand. Because simply, it goes too fast with the computer when you write dialogue. Because in a book, you know, it's my language that should be there. But in a theater play, there are many languages because every person has to have his own language. Otherwise, I'm writing a very bad play. So then I decided it's better for me to write with hand. But besides that, I think I will give you a lesson now on if, uh, how I do write the book. And I have to move around a little. Okay. So we will start over here, I think. We start here. Everything I write has to be based upon a question. Why is that? How come that people are doing like that? Something I would like to know. Maybe I hear something, read something, dream something, think something, see something here. And I start to think, maybe this could be a story. And I start, this is time. Huh? Then, then, then I come like here and think, yes, maybe this could be some story. Okay, I decide here to write it. And then here I start to create the story. Until about here. Here I know everything about the story. Here I start writing. Here the book is done. <laughs> so most of the work is done before I start writing. It happens that I can write the end first, or something in the middle, or I write chronologically. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's something like that it works. Then I hear sometimes colleagues say that, well, when they write starting writing a story, they don't know really what will happen. Don't believe them. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Can you imagine, for example, you go out tonight with some friends after this, to a pub to drink something, and uh, then you say, hey, I want to tell you a story. When you say that, you know the end of the story. Otherwise, it would be ridiculous to stand up, say, I have a story, and then think, <laughs> how on earth is it going to end it? It doesn't work like that. So don't believe them when they say that, ah, we will see what happens when I'm writing. It's bullshit. It's not true. <laughs> it is not true. Don't believe them, I tell you. So, <laughs> no, we know. So when you, um, uh, so with the Wallander, you knew that that would be the last yeah, dot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. absolutely knew. Well, every time in life, you always have to have these secret doors. There is a secret door even in this last Wallander story. We all know the fact that he has a daughter who is a police officer. And it might be that I will write about her. And if I write about her, the father will absolutely be around because he will <laughs> never believe that his daughter can do it without him. <laughs> I do not promise anything, but uh, it might be a possibility. So I didn't do 
the foolish thing of Conan Doyle to kill off Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and then he had to find a ridiculous way to get him back. Uh, it's, it, that is the only thing I really dislike with his stories, because I can tell you I'm still a fan of Sherlock Holmes. I can tell you there is a lot of things to steal from Conan Doyle, really. When I was asked to choose the most memorable of my own interviews, I did struggle because I've had the chance to talk to so many amazing writers over the years at Hay, it was almost an impossible task to pick just one favourite. In the end, though, I chose this 2018 event with the inimitable Jilly Cooper because I think it might be the most fun I've had on stage at Hay. Jilly was everything you'd hoped she would be, jolly and naughty and provocative and slightly tipsy on champagne. She'd just brought out a new novel at the age of 81 and was working on another one and clearly still enjoying herself hugely, travelling all over the world and hanging out with footballers and show jumpers. And she has all sorts of anecdotes in here about how you get stud horses to breed or how to turn your bra into a dog lead if you don't have one handy. It was a really lovely day altogether, I remember, because there was a special lunch before the event where Jilly was presented by Peter Florence with a first edition of Pickwick Papers in recognition of her long career and her contribution to literature. And it, it was especially fitting because the London Review of Books had recently called her a comic novelist in the tradition of Dickens, though of course she was characteristically modest about the comparison. She did cause a few headlines with this event. At one point she claims that modern men cry all the time and have beards and want to have gay affairs because they're terrified of women. And uh, when I asked her about whether she'd had to adapt the behaviour of some of her male characters to modern social mores, she talked about a friend of hers who said how sad it is that he can't flirt anymore. Um, but she said all this with a twinkle, and she obviously enjoys seeing if she can raise a few eyebrows, which did add a certain frisson to the event, um, as I was never quite sure what she was going to come out with next. Everybody I knew who'd met her before I did this event told me that I would be best friends with her by the end of the day, and they were not wrong. One of the things that really struck me most about Jilly is that not just that she's great fun to spend time with, but she's an enormously generous person who really is genuinely curious about other people's lives and loves to ask questions and, and find out what people are up to. She was an absolute delight to talk to, and I hope that you'll enjoy this one as much as I did. I wanted to ask you about the kind of research you do for your books because there's a huge amount of background detail and obviously with the horses that was a world you knew but you then branched out into other areas so tell us how you go about researching a book like Mount. Somebody said the other day how did I cope before the internet came in and actually I just went and talked to people really um, I was very lucky because when I was doing riders I was taken to the Dublin horse show which was amazing and then um, Rivals, I spent a huge time doing the television, both in Cardiff and, and, and ITV, helped me a lot there. And then um, Polo, Polo was wonderful. I went to Sirencester, and, and, and the first time I went there, there was a very pretty girl cuddling a Labrador, and she says, there's been an awful lot of swearing this afternoon. And then there was this woman sitting there saying, wherever my son goes in the world, he is mounted within half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> So I knew I was onto a good thing. 
And then I went to lots of polo matches. And then boring, I don't want to be boring, but then, then, then I wrote, um, um, I did lots of musical novels, so I, I went round with the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and the um, Royal Scottish National Orchestra, and they took me to Prague and Spain and all over the country, so I was so lucky. And, and, and they behave so badly, orchestras, when they, they, play, they drink all night and then they get up and play these. It was lovely seeing one orchestra in Madrid, all around Spain, because they'd play there, they'd drink all night, and then they, 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 the sort of Spanish audience would be cheer and cheer and cheer the next day they were playing. It's lovely. And then, and then um, I was very brave for Wicked, which is about schools. I went and actually taught in a comprehensive, which was terrifying. <laughs> I taught in Eng English literature for about half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> was, was, that, was it your choice to leave after half an hour? Yes, well, no, mine is. And I, and I, did, I did for the music thing, I did Peter and the Wolf, that, the commentator, which was difficult. But also for this book, um, Mount, I went everywhere. I went to Hong Kong and... and um, Dubai, Felix and I went to a racing post lunch, which was brilliant. And we had to, people had to bet, uh, say which horses will win in the afternoon's race. And I sat next to Bruff Scott and he was there and I got every single one right. And um, I got, we got a trip to the Dubai World Cup, which is the sort of pinnacle of racing. I mean, the prize money is just ludicrous. And, and, and um, it's so romantic, the World Cup, because it's in the desert and you see Dubai like a sort of diamond necklace glittering in the distance. And then the, the fireworks and then these gorgeous horses and the stars come down to clap them on in this indigo sky. It's just so glamorous. So that's, that's, that's the sort of mount. And I imagine um, fantastically glamorous just because of the level of money attracts mm. and the people it attracts. And mm. I think that's something that... And the horses. Well, the horses, obviously, as well. Um, Yes, you, actually, you've got some good stories in, in here that I know that you did actually take from your research about the, um, about the process of breeding racehorses. The and, interesting and just... thing, I mean, you probably know all this, but, but a stallion um, can cover four males a day, and the, each covering, will, he'll be paid between 200,000 and 150,000. So, I mean, that's 800,000 a day. It's much more than footballers. I mean, footballers... You know, but anyway... This... <laughs> So this, this goes on for about four months from Valentine's Day right up to then. So that's what they do. But the, thing, the sweet thing about stallions, like men today, they're quite sort of insecure in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and so a sweet stallion um, could only perform if the practice mare was in the corner of the barn watching him. It's a sweet practice mare used to watch him. And then another mare, only like, another stallion only like greys. And so he could only perform if a white sheep was put over any coloured other horse. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. Another one could only perform if the vet was there to hold his paw. Uh, <laughs> which was very expensive indeed. And then a sweet one, my favourite one, was a horse called Jukebox Jory. And Jukebox Jory was rather insecure, but he had two very old mares, which were his wives. And he lived in a field with them. And then he would go off to the covering barn and have all his girlfriends during the day. And he'd go back home to his two wives at the end. Wasn't that sweet? Um, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> No, in a way. Also, also, um, also, 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 the horses. I mean, the horses, I'm sorry to go on, but the horses were so charming. There was one horse called Hurricane Higgins. Um, it was very naughty. And, and, and at the beginning of one race, he was, everybody was, all the jockeys and everybody were waiting, saying, come on. And Hurricane Higgins went into the starting stalls and lay down and went to sleep. <laughs> 
I can't help feeling there's a lot of um, parallels going on here between the, the animal and no, the human world. No, I mean, actually, no. we do get that in the books a lot. You know, the, the characters, your, yes. the animals in your books do become um, characters, and you've got a phenomenal cast list oh, here I know, I know. In, in Mount. And I wanted to ask you... Um, Too long. ..how it works, or how, how you work... Um, when you're coming up with the idea of a new novel, when you're using characters that you've been living with for, for many years through many different books, um, because their relationship... Well, I was just going to... There's a little bit here I was going to ask you about. This is very typical, isn't it, of a... So we have... Um, since Rupert and Cosmo were so inextricably linked, with Cosmo's father marrying Rupert's first wife, who had already eloped with Isa's father, Jake, during the Los Angeles Olympics, and Isa briefly marrying Rupert's daughter, Tabitha, who was now married to Co Cosmo's elder brother, Wolf. The whole thing went viral. It's you crazy. See. So, it, it's, it's absolutely... I, and you see, this child, this child, I promise you, is a very good novelist, and she writes um, um, serials, yes? I do, I do write a serial. Yeah. And but so you must have exactly the same problem. If you have the same characters going through a book, how, how, how much time do you spend in the next book explaining what happened in the book before? Or you say to your readers, go back and read the first one, what do you think? Well, and also keeping track of, I mean, certainly for you with these very complex family relationships that go back several books, how do you keep track of all your characters? Do you have a sort of chart on your wall or do you have a brilliant um, researcher who no, reminds no. you of everybody? Or um, divine PA. My PA understands the internet, which is brilliant. She can Google. She can Google, and she can um, Google, and she can do email. <laughs> which, which, which is <laughs> which is so brilliant. I mean, do you not do you no, not dirty I, your hands with email? No, I don't want to dirty my hands. I'd love to learn it, but I tried, but I couldn't. But, 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 but no, but it's wonderful to have some, No, I, mean, I, I just get in a terrible muddle. But, but I, I hope I'll sort it out. But you've just got to discard some characters. You can't have too many. And so when you're returning... But, but, but how do you do it? Um, well, I think you, you, know, you have your regular characters mm. that come back, and, yeah. but always there are... New you have ones. to go back and check what you did with somebody and what, where, they, where you last left them. Yeah. Um, but I wondered how difficult that must be going back. It's a very difficult moment with the you football books. Three book. decades. The so. football books, I've got lots of characters that have got to be bought in from abroad and everything. So I'm in a, I'm in very, I'm in a muddle. I don't quite know how to work it out. But I, I'll so get we there. should say that the, you, this is your next novel that you're writing, which mm. is, is, it is called Tackle, isn't yep. that right? Yep. Tackle, of course it is. Because you've already used Score. Mm. We, can't, we can't have Score back again. Um, I hope Rupert's going to be England manager. It'll be wonderful. So. <laughs> He has been... We need a manager. I mean, I know Sasuke's well, wonderful, but we need somebody who's quite tough, I think, and glamorous. And all those... I don't know whether you watch football, but all those foreign um, Contes and um, Marinos and Pancettos, they're all very sort of glamorous, and you need, we need an English, glamorous English one. We do, is that an English problem, do you think? We just don't have quite enough glamorous men in general. I mean... Well, it's... I think the problem we have a Premier League and all the foreign players come, come in and... Um, you know, take over. I, I met Alex Ferguson. I had lunch with him the other day at a party, and he was so nice. He was so nice, and and, and, and he is. He was he was a brilliant manager because he was. Everybody says he was a bully, but he wasn't. He talked to all the tea ladies and everybody. He was a lovely man. Well, I do remember um, when we talked before, Jilly, you uh, before the event, you did give me some good advice, which was that when I get to 81, mm. I should write a book about footballers, because mm. then you get to invite lots of very yep. beautiful young men to your house for lunch every day. Yes, lovely. Which is, 
apparently how you're conducting your research. Yes, lovely. Now. lovely. Yeah. I, I must tell you, actually very naughty, but I must tell you, uh, when I won Alex Ferguson over, I told him this story about... Um, can I tell a slightly naughty story? I said, this was in a Scottish pub, and there were three mice, and they were discussing which was the toughest mouse. And um, the first Aberdeen mouse said, I'm the toughest mouse. I went into the larder, and there's this great big cheese, piece of cheese in a mousetrap, and I ripped the mousetrap apart, I threw it across the room, and I ate the cheese. I'm the toughest mouse. So then... Edinburgh Mouse looked him up and down and said, you are not the toughest mouse. I went into the larder, there was a great pile of rat poison, and I snorted all the rat poison with no ill effect. I'm the toughest mouse. And they looked round, and Glasgow Mouse was wandering towards the door. And they said, Glasgow Mouse, Glasgow Mouse, where are you going? I'm off to shag the cat. <laughs> I think that's when Alex and Ferguson, he giggled like mad, and we bonded after that. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Tone lowered. Fantastic. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested, actually, in the... <laughs> in the idea of how how easy or how difficult it is to still be shocking, to still write something that, that surprises or shocks people, particularly about sex, um, given that you've been doing it for <laughs> so many writing about it. Oh, Jilly, it's, this is a problem. You've read, if you immerse yourself in Jilly's novels and it's just, you just start no. speaking in double entendres. Um, how... No, but you're quite right. I mean, the thing is, I'm 81, and 81... Um, I have to sort of, I mean, because I you know, have a charming greyhound, bluebell that sleeps on my bed, that's my sort of limits of research. And so, not even that way, but bluebell's there, but I mean, basically, so I have to ask people all the time. And, and, and so I, I'm going to have to make it up or not have any, I think, the next one. Well, I think if you don't have any, people might be a tiny bit disappointed. But I was going to ask you, because we were talking earlier about, um, you mentioned the internet, and, and we were speaking earlier about how that's changed the whole landscape of romantic relationships, really, and I wondered how easy it is for you to incorporate that into your, um, with your younger characters especially, just the, the whole different scenarios that people now have for sexual interaction. I, 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 I'm working on it, but it's difficult. I mean, because, I, mean I, I, I don't know how many of you go online, but the idea of going online... I mean, I, I have a bad hip, and I couldn't run away from a mass murder if I found one <laughs> online, could I? Do you know what I mean? I, I just think uh, it's completely new. I think, um, I, I think it has changed. I think the young are much more... Um, it's very difficult. What do you think? Could anybody, what does anybody think? Well, um, it's, I think it's interesting that um, in your books, there's a, there's a real sort of um, celebration, yeah. if you like, of And, and, um, and, and seeing somebody gorgeous and, and saying, yeah. oh, 
and yeah, and an enjoyment and a kind of delight. And, and there was a, a very scholarly piece, I should say, written about Jilly's books in the London Review of Books um, earlier, I think it was last year, uh, which talked about um, the importance of writing about pleasure mm. and how little there is of it around. And, and that's what your books really celebrate, pleasure of all different kinds, but so. in particular, sex. Um, and I, I think... Um, a lot of the writing about sex, you know, there have been some very mm. successful mm. erotic fiction, um, erotic novels written in recent years, but they don't have quite that same sort of jolly sense of mischief that your books have. What do you think? I, I, I met a young man the other day who said when he goes to a party, he looks for a person, not a gender. So I think it's called gender flu fluidity or fluency. F I think fluidity. <laughs> So I, I just think, I just, I don't know, because I have an adorable gay friend whose um, lover died of motion in Rome, which was tragic, and he loved this man so much. And he's a gorgeous man. He's just started going on the internet now, and he says the extraordinary thing, it's all married men wanting to have gay affairs, which is quite odd, isn't it? Do you think men have been so terrified of women now, it's safer to get on with their own sexes? Uh, that, that's one interpretation. I hadn't thought of that. But you were saying, I mean, you were talking about uh, how things were in the 60s, you know, when you and Leo would go to parties and people would uh, proposition both of you together. Yeah. So maybe none of these things are new, it's just that people have different... I think, I think it's very cyclic. Because, um, fun enough, men, if you noticed on television, men cry all the time now. Whole time, they're always crying. And, and, they, have, <laughs> and they have beards. And, 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 and if you read Shakespeare, I mean, nobody cried um, when my, my father, my, Leo never cried, never saw Leo crying, this like that. But, but, but men cry much more now. And also, but in the Victorian age, people were obsessed with death. They had beards. And also, go back to Shakespeare, Mark Antony, poor soul, his eyes are red with weeping. And he says, if you have tears to shed, prepare to shed them now. So it's, I think everything goes round and round in a circle, don't you? Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. And you can listen to the full events and over 8,000 more over on the Hay Player on our website. Our next guest is broadcaster Francine Stock. <laughs>